continuing our journey into silence, which, of course, I think, to a greater or lesser extent, we're all doing together each day here. Just for purposes of understanding, helps me understand that I have sort of three ways of, three facets or aspects of silence. The first is what we've been speaking about a lot and we'll do more today and has to do the, with the, the place of silence. Uh, do we recognize it as anything of value? Because if it has, if it's, it has no place in our scheme of things, then uh, we're not orienting anything that we're doing in order to enter into it. So we've explored that a little bit. And I think what uh, I've been trying to suggest is that uh, all the richness of action, both physical and verbal, and also the, the miracle of thinking, what the conceptual mind can do. Uh, so physical, verbal, and mental action is what we equate with life, that we equate it as being life. And so we orient ourselves around that. And all that, I think, is being suggested in Dharma teachings is that there's an immense dimension, in a sense, in back of all this that nourishes it to some degree already, called silence. So it's not to eliminate or discredit what we're already doing, but to acknowledge that uh, life really includes silence. So we've had a skewed, partial, somewhat distorted relationship to the nature of things. And I would say all spiritual work, it's to me by no means unique to Buddhism, uh, recognizes this dimension and the vocabulary and, and uh, symbols, of course, vary. But silence is silence. There are no symbols in it. There are no Christians or Jews or Buddhists when you go deep enough. Where, how could there be? You have to leave. That's baggage. That has to be left behind. Uh, the second facet, which perhaps we'll ease into a bit, has to do with... Um, entering into to silence, granted that we're interested, that we uh, are interested in discovering silence, and I hope, I know, we're all discovering silence on this retreat. At whatever level, a few seconds here and there, it's all part of something vast, and it all matters. So if you have four or five seconds of when the breath is just silken, and you just feel um, so smooth and peaceful, and quiet, and happy. That's it. That's the beginnings of it. That's part of it. Um, and our practice would be to get to know it, get to know silence, get to see uh, what its effects are. Not by thinking, but noticing what it does to the quality of our life, what it does to our body, uh, the effect it may have in terms of energy, in terms of our attitude, the way in which we perceive things, and then we lose it, it's okay. But uh, entering into silence, the second realm, 
it's a vast place and uh, here we'll do, deal with it a little bit as I say perhaps today and maybe not we have to be very careful because the new age has brought some very wonderful things to the West I'm not a total discreditor of the new age but also one thing that it has done is uh, somehow a, a value that everything is simple and easily gotten uh, it's a kind of fast food mentality in terms of things that are a lifelong endeavor at least and so even silence uh, it's very easy for us to underestimate uh, the nature of what is called silence the uh, vastness of it the all-pervasive vastness and power of it so once we discover it and can enter into it perhaps uh, it becomes a more conscious aspect of our life and then there is silence and action all three of course are interrelated and that's where if there is power if silence is really very very powerful then it shows itself it's intended to in practice you don't just leave it in special places or special rooms or on a cushion uh, it's meant to be used and to clarify and enrich every aspect of life whether it's business or the arts or science medicine whatever you tell me if you're a writer if you're a surgeon if you're a housewife uh, this energy is prior to culture it's uh, pure energy and it's meant to be directed in useful ways of course in wise and compassionate ways from the Buddhist point of view but we're still in that mucking around that first part entering into silence and uh, we were talking over a bit how the practice as we're doing it is a way of silencing the mind we mentioned the shamatha practice which is one useful way and then if you recall uh, insight into impermanence which helps us let go and as we let go whenever we let go there's silence even if it's just for a little bit because there's a kind of understanding not in words that, that perhaps follows it when we our old habits have to turn it into something verbal that we can recognize and this silent understanding in a way the our practices when we talk about mindfulness the real seeing is silent it's a clear mirror so this silent understanding uh, has momentum but for right now we're still mucking about and I thought one um, way of perhaps making things a little bit more concrete other examples as to how our practice uh, enables the mind to quiet down to relax itself into stillness we're not trying to break the door down to get to stillness it's probably pretty obvious to all of you that that wouldn't work and even we can't even think our way into it uh, silence not only is it shy but it won't compete with verbal eloquence it won't go near it if you start endlessly 
going on and on. Uh, silence, which is much more eloquent than any of our words, will just patiently sit by until you exhaust yourself. But it won't open up to you. So we can't break the door down, we can't think our way into it. We can use thought to some degree skillfully, and we're doing it right now, kind of inclining ourselves in a certain direction. And now and then I've seen this happen, uh, somebody who's quite intellectual uh, and is uh, able to use the intellect very well, and uh, let's say through study of the text or through hearing teachings on all of this, on the limitations of thought and so forth, which we've hinted at a little bit. Uh, I haven't seen this happen often, but once in a while. Uh, the intellect, as an act of its own intelligence, sees its own limitations. And it has ego in it. And it's so proud <laughs> that it saw through itself that it kind of gives you an opening. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but... Uh, so, it, the intellect isn't hopeless, but it can just bring us to the threshold of it. And um, in the land of silence, there's no room for, for ego. Not as we know it. Uh, the examples I thought, I'd like to use the image uh, which seems to have caught on, at least in uh, the discussion groups that we've had and some of the interviews. Um, Corrado's use of the Buddha's use, now I'll be using Corrado's use of the Buddha's use of the two arrows, which I think is, as the teenagers say, neat. <laughs> because it's really a profound teaching and extremely practical and useful. And sometimes now I'm walking around seeing how many arrows you know, a person has when they come in for an interview in them. I just had about 25 in myself, but I pulled them out before I came in here. Because what would it be like if I were giving this talk with all these arrows in me? I don't think you'd be too convinced about anything. Let's start very simply, very ordinary. Let's say you have uh, a pain in your leg. We're sitting and you're attempting to keep, keep movement to a minimum. And suddenly, uh, as we all know this one, the body starts to hurt somewhere. Perhaps it's your knee. And you try to do all the things that we know what to do. We observe it, etc., etc. The first arrow would be that bodily pain. That's a fact. It is there. Your leg really hurts. You've been sitting still for almost an hour and it's starting to really hurt. But then the mind comes in on it. That's the second arrow. The mind comes in on it and starts to interpret what's happening to itself. Uh, and the most important conclusion it comes to, of course, is that it's happening to me. <laughs> now, once it concludes that this pain is happening to me, it figures that out or it invents it, however you look at it, then you have torment. So the practice would be, how can we extract? We can't do anything about that first hour. We could. We could just get up and walk out. Some of you have. (laughs) (laughs) 
But assuming you are what is called around here in quotes, a good yogi, <laughs> another trip we're laying on you, um, you sit there and there's the pain and it's getting more intense by the moment. But if you can uh, understand how there's something in us that appropriates that physical, those physical sensations, that hates it, that doesn't want any part of it, that identifies with it, and then begins to create a story about what's happening to it. And then at that point you have real dukkha, you have real suffering. And so if we can uh, see all that, uh, it's pulling the arrow out. Now you're still in pain, but there can be a subsiding of, okay, it's workable. Another example, this comes from an interview in Cambridge. We're getting a little bit uh, deeper or more, um, I don't know what to call it, and anyway, we're going somewhere. Um, a person came in for, uh, for an interview in Cambridge and we started to talk about, uh, this wasn't in the context of a retreat, uh, we have interviews where we just talk for a while about basically applying the Dharma to daily life and how the sitting's going and so forth. And this person was very, very down, very depressed. And why? He said, well, I woke up this morning and lately my body has been feeling stiff. And this morning I woke up and it was really stiff. I said, yeah, okay. He said, well, I'm getting old. I said, and then... Uh, what proceeded was about 10 minutes of uninterrupted uh, discussion about that where the person who is in the, I would say, mid-40s is already in a nursing home, <laughs> uh, wheelchair, and we're all visiting, maybe, uh, and uh, false teeth, a hearing aid. And I'm looking at, you know, a 45-year-old seemingly, you know, person who's up and about, has an active life. The first arrow is simply the stiffness. Now, that's a fact. And perhaps it does have to do with aging. Let's for the moment assume it does. Fine. Uh, it's not something to uh, wax lyrical about or dance around, you know, that far out. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting old. But also, what it is is a fact about the nature of the body. And then the mind comes in, and that's that same mind, and now not only does its knee hurt, but it found out it's stiff, and it interprets this stiffness to indicate, probably correctly, that uh, I'm aging. And with that comes a whole, um, it's like a hornet's nest of concept on top of, you know, it's arrows on top of arrows, all uh, landing on the same target, namely me. And before you know it again, you have torment not because the body is stiff, but because of how that fact, observable fact, was used as the basis to create a sense of self and a notion about the history of that self and where it was headed, which is to the grave. Okay. Now, how do you pull that arrow out? Uh, by seeing all this. Uh, and if you can see it, you can begin to see, my goodness, the, the mind has such immense power. It has complete poetic license, you know, to just make up whatever it wants to. Uh, and it does. And then we're stuck with the story, if we allow ourselves to be. 
So wisdom is seeing into that, and it's understanding that the body is stiff. And again, it's not to, sometimes uh, people think that uh, when we emphasize what is and the way things are, it's, it's extraordinary passivity and fatalism. You know, just, yeah, I'm just uh, old and stiff, you know, just, just <laughs> let, let it all happen. And uh, no, if there's anything you can do about it, rub some oils and get all, you know, these new uh, supplements that supposedly will help you, maybe, I hope so. You know, jog a little bit more and eat less dairy and no, less uric acid, whatever. Less, uh, it's not to not do that. You can do that. Uh, you can do other intelligent things because the fear that this person had, I would say the dominant um, energy that was there in reporting this feeling of I'm growing old was fear. But often there's intelligence tucked inside of fear. So fear is not useless. The problem is uh, sometimes we don't take advantage of the intelligence or we do and then we just keep the fear alive. It did its job. It to told us about something. Okay, now part of our, I'm remembering now what this person said and it looks like they're going to run out of social security and by the time, I, you, know, like, you know, so okay, then set aside a certain amount of money each week from your savings and put it in the bank. You know, uh, if you're very daring, start going into, you know, stocks and invest in fear, you know, those commercials where you have Bermuda shorts and you're walking along in, in this, the golden years <laughs> with a big smile on your face, <laughs> golf clubs and, a, you know, a loud, bright shirt. <laughs> it's okay to do that, you know. So you, it's not telling you not to do that. That would be, might be looks like it is, intelligence, you know, <laughs> set aside some money. But then uh, if, the, uh, if the melodrama keeps droning on, that is not dharma. That's not, what we're, that's not what we're learning. So you can see into it, you can extract some of the intelligence that's in the fear and do any intelligent things that you know how to do to help you with your situation. Uh, and it may be that what you have is a stiff body, and then, not maybe, you do, and not only that, you definitely will get older. There's absolutely no question about that. Okay, can we learn how to, to live with that? Or is that something we either have to uh, be tormented by or deny, one or the other? Can we allow it into the sunshine, see it as a fact, and learn how to live with it? Uh, learn the different joys, the different ways of fulfillment at each phase in life. So you pull that arrow out once you begin to see that. The third example is a koan that I think I've given, I'm not sure, but almost every, Corrado and I have taught this retreat for 11 years. I just found that out uh, before we came up here. And uh, almost every year, I think some of you can verify this, there's one Zen koan that I just love because it has endless applications. We've already given you a few. And Today is a pleasant day, so it isn't as appropriate. But remember it, because when the hot weather comes, you can use it. It's the hot Buddha, cold Buddha koan. And in the koan, there are many versions of it. If you've been in Zen, uh, don't hold me to your version, because I'm making up my own. <laughs> um, a practitioner goes into uh, to the teacher and says, uh, 
how do you practice when it's very hot and when it's very cold? Because in, in the monasteries, uh, even to this day, but certainly then, uh, there wasn't much that you can do about heat or cold. It was in the winter, it was very cold, and in the summer, it was very hot. So the question is, how can you practice? How can you be comfortable? How can you practice comfortably when it's very, very hot or it's very, very cold? And the teacher screams out, kill hot, kill cold. It doesn't sound very Buddhist, <laughs> uh, but it is. And there are many ways to explain it, but what the te one explanation is that what the teacher is saying is, kill the concept hot, kill the concept cold. Now, we have a whole industry, probably a multi-million dollar industry, that is uh, improving all the time in terms of the scientific credentials of the announcers and the graphics designed to either tell you how terrifying it is because it's going to rain. Uh, you know, it sounds like World War III has just been declared. And then you look at it, it's going to rain. Oh, I thought it was at least an earthquake, you know. Or it's going to be beautiful and sunny, and it sounds like the Messiah has come. You know, okay. Okay, and so we have a lot of concepts about the weather, and uh, as we all know, we spent half the year talking about how cold it is and how we can't wait for it to get warm, and then it does get warm, and then we start talking about, they don't have any air conditioning. My mother, I just spoke, any air conditioning at IMS? No, nope, Mom. No. And then, and then it was as if I was uh, this incredible victim, you know, just sort of like slaving away in this, uh, like in the, a galley slave in one of these old ships, you know, like. <laughs> okay. All that's happening is it's hot or it's cold, and, you know, gradations of it. So what the master is saying is, uh, kill hot is, once you start naming it and you say, it's hot, I'm very hot, you're already finished, it's over. <laughs> yeah, okay. So wisdom, that's the second arrow. The first arrow is granted, you know, you're sweating bullets as we were the other day, or you're shivering. In fact, one answer, and there are many answers that are considered good ones, is one answer is, in the wintertime, the Buddha shivers, in the summertime, the Buddha sweats. In other words, what else is the Buddha going to do? <laughs> you know, he's a human, he says he is, at least the books say he said he is, uh, a human being subject to the same conditions that we are, that's the whole point. And, of course, when it's hot, he'll sweat, when it's cold, shiver, period. Okay, so you can see, now, as we learn how to do that, uh, and even even better would be preventive medicine where this, the second arrow doesn't even hit, it's not, we don't even have to extract it, is that more and more we become so uh, directly attuned to reality without having to constantly verbalize to ourselves and to others what is happening to us. And it's not just a uh, scientific description, you know, it's just full of what we've been talking about. Uh, so as that starts to happen, we're able to help the mind quiet down. And that's why it is possible to be at peace, even if it's hot or cold, uh, to be at peace if you're old and stiff, 
and I hear I haven't had been tested yet to even be at peace while you're dying. Okay, but in order, but we have to start now. You can't wait until dying time. I'm going to really practice now. <laughs> it's a little late because we need a steady mind right now. Um, there's another area that I I mentioned, uh, which seems to have uh, a lot of bearing on our ability uh, to slip into silence, especially, you know, we've all tasted some silence here, I'm sure of it. But you know, if you keep on doing this stuff, um, the silence starts lasting longer and it starts uh, getting deeper and more intense and it starts to become a new dimension, uh, a new dimension for us in our life, something that we're discovering something we didn't know. It's been there all along, but it's not just that you've calmed down or you're relaxed. It's way beyond that. Okay, so that's going on. And yet, we're in the approach part. Uh, a number of you have, have confirmed this, that sometimes as you get on the threshold, you feel that there's real clarity. Silence is also clarity or emptiness. Suddenly there's a fear and a pulling back. It's like we're working hard, or we would love to enter into silence. And yet, um, when we get an intimation of it or an inkling of it, something happens and we tighten up and pull back uh, out of fear. And there seems to be a connection. I don't know if it's for everyone, but I've seen it in my own practice. I've talked it over with um, one or two teachers, of, uh, one or two of my teachers. There's some relationship between the way in which we accept death, the fa not uh, accept the fact that we will die, uh, the way we are, our relationship to loneliness, to being alone, and our ability to enter into silence. In some way, they have something in common, even though they sound rather different. Um, when you're, uh, many of us have fear of being alone. Uh, we, uh, we're afraid. So we not only uh, have many things to do and have many people in our lives, but also um, when we are physically alone, we make sure we have company in the mind. So we have lots of pictures and words and activities. These are our companions inside the mind so that we won't have to feel alone. We won't have to feel lonely. And I think uh, we all know versions of that. In Buddhist practice, at a certain point, there's always, for, I don't think it's, again, I think it's all spiritual approaches, encourage at a certain point, when you're ready for it, and you'll know if you are so inclined, to do self-retreats, to go off somewhere by yourself, because that brings up the fear and certainly a sense of loneliness in order to... Um, meet it, to enter, enter into it, to open to it, to enter into communion with it, and to move through it and be free of it. Uh, so if you, when we think of death, if you haven't accepted, now I'm not talking at the moment of death, I'm just, right now. If we haven't to some degree reflected and gotten uh, some 
sense of acceptance of the fact that we absolutely will die. There is no question about it. Whether you do it by some of the methods that are available in our practice or just uh, you don't really need methods uh, because evidence is wherever you look, people are dying and people we know. And in some way, make the connection that we're not exempt from that lawfulness and that it, it is about us. And it's not that you have to have perfected that, but to some degree have come to peace with it. Because one of the things that happens, if you look carefully at your fear of dying, what you may find, again, this is not so much the actual dying, what we're afraid of is the idea of dying. And when we think about it carefully, we realize that all of our accumulations, you know, our career, uh, our bank account, our, the wonderful friends we have, uh, the antique collection, our book collection, the beautiful home we have, uh, our reputation, the great, you, we can go on and on. We have to leave it all behind. In one day, we lose our job, our family, and all our possessions. <laughs> We're finished. <laughs> okay, so, but now the silence has some of that in it. And that's why, if you've made peace to some degree, again, it's uh, not complete liberation. It's not because that's what, that's what the whole journey is about. But to some degree, then because in silence the same thing happens. In order to enter into the abode of silence, to enter into that place, you have to travel very, very light. The silence that I'm talking about, we're all getting a taste of it, but as it gets deeper, uh, the kind of silence uh, that is meant here is one where the world as we know it, all the representations in our mind of how the world is, symbols and thoughts and memories and so forth, that all collapses. We have to leave that behind. Um, actually, it's a fantastic relief. But our mind, just as it's worried about the idea of death, is also worried about the idea of the unknown, because that silence is unknown. Clearly, I'm talking about something that is a bit beyond, let's say, just you know, a, a few seconds or a few minutes of silence. It's not strictly speaking a matter of time. It's a matter of depth. And if you're resistant to it, if there's any resistance to it, uh, then th what the mind is doing is conjuring up in itself a notion about what the unknown will be like, what stillness will be like, and it's terrified because it can't come in there with all of its thoughts and worries and fears and plans and hopes and aspirations and uh, all that we have identified with as being me and mine. Now, if you've already done some work on that in these other realms, uh, I think they are somewhat interrelated. Uh, and in order to, at some point, allow yourself into that silence, faith is important. Again, I can't say if it's true for everyone. I think sometimes, whammo, and there you are, suddenly you're there. Some people have that fortunate experience. Uh, faith is important in the sense that sometimes a kind of wisdom uh, points you in the direction and is, is making it very clear that you're on the verge of being where you say you want to be. 
But then it takes a faith, a faith, I don't know in what, in life, in the Buddha, in the Dharma. You can make up words as to what it is, but some kind of trust so that you can let go. And it's a little bit like you let go into the silence. Now, the truth is, we've done this thousands of times already. It's not spoken of so much in the Buddhist tradition, but in the yogic tradition it is, and it's in Western science. We know that every night, I mean, if it's a reasonable night of sleep, there's some period of time, hopefully a few hours, of dreamless sleep. Now, in that period of absolute rest, which we all need to be sane, there's no you to worry about. That's why it's so wonderful. Do you get the message? It's the whole path there. <laughs> you know, the dreams are a problem. Who are the dreams about? It's the same thing. How am I doing? And the things we didn't deal with straightforwardly, they come up disguised at night. But fortunately, whether it's God or the, the way things are, or whatever language you like, uh, we're allowed to have two hours where, as we say, give me a break. <laughs> there isn't me and mine uh, obsessing again about how I'm doing, how I used to be, how I will be. And so we've already, but it isn't conscious. We've already allowed ourselves to be in that place of exquisite peace and rest. And the reason it is that way is because we are not there. Okay, so we're now starting to move more into silence. Um, what's the main noise? Why aren't things really, really silent and, and fulfilling? Why aren't they? By the way, I have a little quote here, just so you know the, what someone else said. It's not just uh, what the Buddha said. Here's from from Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic, quote, There is nothing in all the universe so much like God as silence. So that's the direction that all spiritual work is moving. Um, well, then, who's making all the noise? No surprise, me. It's the self, selfing. Uh, the Buddha's teaching of anatta, or emptiness of self, uh, why is it called the crown jewel? Because that's the mischief maker. That's where all our problems come from. The wars, everything, including uh, our nervous condition and so forth. So that, uh, finally, the practice is, uh, the Buddha says this in a number of places, a very economical statement about what the whole, his whole teaching is about, under no conditions attached to anything whatsoever as being me or mine, paraphrasing it a bit. But what we are doing all day long is we're attaching to everything as being me or mine. We're taking everything totally personally, whether it's a knee or a stiffness or the temperature, And so, an inquiry, finally the question, who am I, is at the core of what we're doing. Uh, because the self is just very loud. Uh, it's either loud with its triumphs, or it's loud with its defeats, or it's loud with its aspirations and uh, anxieties and so forth. Um, and according to our teaching, 
and it's for us to test, it's making all this noise, it's center stage, it's got the best of our en energies being used up and dispersed, and what do you know, it's not even real. So how do we get tricked into that? If this is true, each one of us has to find out. It's not for you to believe it. That won't help. Because it's essential that you see it for yourself. Um, so here we enter into a very rich realm. Uh, the whole idea which is happening all day long in our practice, of course, is dealing with ways in which we attach to what's happening to us as being me or mine. And all of them have to do with the question of who is it that's breathing, who's walking, whose knee hurts, etc. Um, let me end, uh, end up tonight in this realm, for me personally, one uh, doorway into it has been through the study of self-images. It's been very helpful in my own practice. Uh, all of us, we have like a, uh, an image-making factory that's working almost around the clock, even in the dream time. You know, it does take, there is a break, the night shift goes home for a while. You know, it's those few magical hours. But, um, We're dealing with it all day long, and also we're not always afflicted by it. You may not realize it, that uh, your practice is much better than you think. That any time you're really attentive and mindful, in that moment, there isn't an identification with what's happening. You can't be both identified with it and be fully mindful. So in that moment, it's a moment of relief from this preoccupation. And maybe they aren't, the moments aren't so continuous, but they grow. Also, in those moments when the ego is just so uh, huge, and then finally we, more and more we begin to see it in action, then it's not that dangerous. That let's say you uh, do something and you can hear yourself claiming credit. You open the door for a yogi who's carrying a tray. I open the door for you. You know, like, <laughs> you know, and just a simple thing like that. And the whole practice just crashed in that moment. <laughs> Okay. But you see it. You see it, and after a while, there's a lot of humor in it, as you see this, uh, something that apparently doesn't fully exist, claiming credit for everything <laughs> that's going on all day long. Okay. Um, so we're doing it as you begin more and more to uh, get to know this selfing at work. It starts to lose some of its poison, some of its toxin. Let me end with... Um, an unlikely twosome who agree with each other, Joseph Stalin and Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma, <laughs> it's true, it's true. Bodhidharma is considered the person who brought what we now call Chan or Zen uh, to China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and so forth. He was an Indian. Uh, uh, master who traveled to China, and when he arrived there, we'll take him first, Stalin came later, um, 
the Chinese were at that point doing amazing work, but it was primarily scholarly, the Buddhists. They, they knew everything. They knew all the Chinese are great scholars. And they had all the Buddhist teaching, and they were doing fantastic commentaries and translations. But no one was getting, no one was waking up. Okay, so Bodhidharma came there in part to like uh, balance that out a bit. Anyway, uh, when he got there, w uh, the emperor or an emperor—I don't know—but uh, it's called emperor—was uh, interested. Who is this uh, man who's come so far away? Who's supposed to be a meditation master? So he went to Bodhidharma and he said proudly, uh, I've contributed huge amounts of money to the building of temples, to the financing of monks and nuns, uh, for the health of the Sangha, I've built monasteries. How much merit do I get? And Bodhidharma, who we have to understand has a, a quiet mind, an empty mind, said absolutely none. And the emperor was crushed. What do you mean? I've done all this uh, dana, as we could. But you see, the dana was done with me and mine in it. In other words, basically, I'll do all these nice things, but I want to get merit, you know, for wherever, wherever it is we head, for, we go to from here. So that was the first blow, and the emperor was a little unnerved. But then he said, um, "Can you tell me about the holy dharma?" In other words, he was really in concepts. And Bodhidharma said, nothing holy, just vast space. And this was, the emperor was getting more and more angry because he didn't understand what was being said. And he felt the holy dharma was being trivialized. Nothing holy, just vast space. So annoyed, he said, who is it that's making all these uh, confident statements? And Bodhidharma answered, and I think his answer is priceless, he said, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Now, that isn't that he's confused or lost or, you know, he's, he uh, has amnesia or anything like that. He has no idea of who he is. Sometimes it's translated, I don't know, but I think the translation was, I have no idea, is closest to it. In other words, he's not making a self. Okay. Joseph Stalin, uh, that other great benefactor of mankind, <laughs> um, apparently in his biography, um, one of his top assistants was complaining to him one day, and he said, um, I'm having problems uh, with this uh, one of my subordinates. It's just he's really becoming a problem. And Stalin listened, and he went on and on about what trouble it was. And all Stalin said was, hmm said, you know, no person, no problem. <laughs> okay, you can guess what happened the next day. Yeah, so you can see it. He's also a great Dharma master. Yeah, okay. Do we have a few moments of silence?
This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 10, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.